From Washington, D.C., this is On the Ground. What do the attacks of January 6th, the horrific massacre of children in Ovalde, and the U.S. obsession with guns all have in common? The answer is the state of Texas. We spend the hour with our geopolitical analyst, the prolific historian Gerald Horn, discussing his new book, The Counter-Revolution of 1836, Texas Slavery and Jim Crow, and the Roots of U.S. Fascism. It grows out of a violent Texas culture that stretches back at least to Texas's secession from Mexico in 1836, not least because Mexico, under a president of African descent, had moved to abolish slavery. Not only was Texas a bulwark in the effort to maintain slavery, it was a place where the Old South met the Wild West and where the genocide of indigenous people was official policy. As used to be said in the 19th century, if we're not able to corral Texas, Texas will corral us. All that and much more coming up. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. 11-year-old Mia Cerillo testified in Congress this week about surviving last month's murder of 19 of her classmates at Robb Elementary School in Uvalde, Texas. She said of the 18-year-old gunman, quote, he shot my friend that was next to me, and I thought he was going to come back to the room, so I grabbed blood and put it all over me, end quote. Before Mia, Dr. Roy Guerrero, a pediatrician who attended Robb Elementary School, rushed to treat shooting victims that day and described corpses of grade schoolers rendered unrecognizable by rounds from a military-style weapon loaded with expanding bullets. What I did find was something no prayer will ever relieve. Two children whose bodies had been pulverized by bullets fired at them, decapitated, whose flesh had been ripped apart, that the only clue at their identities was a blood-splattered cartoon clothes still clinging to them, clinging for life and finding none. After this testimony, the House passed largely along party lines the Protecting Our Kids Act, which includes seven gun reform provisions, including banning high-capacity magazines and bump stocks, raising the age for purchasing semi-automatic rifles from 18 to 21, and strengthening federal criminal offenses for gun trafficking. All of the reforms were also passed individually, but are expected to be blocked in the Senate because of the Jim Crow filibuster rule, which would require 10 Republicans for a total of 60 votes to also vote yes for the legislation to pass. The attack on the U.S. Capitol on January 6, 2021, by a mob of supporters of former President Donald Trump was an attempted coup, said Representative Benny Thompson of Mississippi, chairman of the January 6 Commission, during the committee's first public hearing Thursday night. Donald Trump, the president of the United States, spurred a mob of domestic enemies of the Constitution to march down the Capitol and subvert American democracy. Any legal jargon you hear about seditious conspiracy, obstruction of an official proceeding, conspiracy to defraud the United States, 
boils down to this. January 6th was the culmination of an attempted coup, a brazen attempt, as one rioter put it shortly after January 6th, to overthrow the government. Over two hours, the committee presented findings from their year-long investigation, including new video of the attack and planning of the attack by documentarian Nick Quested, and video and audio testimony given to the committee from Trump's senior staff and family. The committee outlined what will be unveiled to the public in a series of hearings over the coming weeks. As these dramatic testimonies unfolded on Capitol Hill this week, the Biden administration was in Los Angeles hosting the Summit of the Americas, which is being judged as a foreign policy failure. Heads of state from Mexico, Bolivia, Honduras, Guatemala, and El Salvador all boycotted because of the Biden administration's exclusion of Cuba, Nicaragua, and Venezuela. Journalist Ben Norton said this week on his podcast, Multipolarista, that the boycotting or excluded countries represent more than 200 million people, or one-third of the population of the region, including the Caribbean and Central and South America. Biden's team was doubly accused of hypocrisy at the summit for refusing to invite Cuba, Venezuela, and Nicaragua, which all hold elections, but at the same time planning to meet with the monarchy of Saudi Arabia, which obviously has no elections, beheads human rights activists, and is implicated in the murder of Washington Post columnist Jamal Khashoggi. Journalist Abby Martin confronted Secretary of State Antony Blinken in Los Angeles about the murder of Khashoggi and the murder of Al Jazeera journalist Shireen Abu Akleh by Israeli forces. These are your two greatest allies in the Middle East, Saudi Arabia and Israel. They have uh, murdered American journalists and there have been absolutely no repercussions. And you're sitting up here talking about the freedom of press and democracy. The United States is denying sovereignty to tens of millions of people around the world with draconian sanctions for electing leaders that you do not like. Why is there no accountability for Israel or Saudi Arabia for murdering journalists? It is one of the most dangerous places in the world to be a journalist in Palestine. In Black Lives Matter news, in Michigan, Kent County Prosecutor Chris Becker announced Thursday afternoon that Grand Rapids Police Officer Christopher Schur will be charged with murder for shooting a black man, Patrick Leoya, in the back of his head, execution style, following a traffic stop in April. And on Thursday, the U.S. Department of Justice announced the launch of a pattern or practice investigation into the Louisiana State Police over whether the department engages in racially discriminatory policing. Ronald Green, a 49-year-old unarmed black man, died in May of 2019 after being stunned, wrestled to the ground, punched in the face, and placed in a chokehold by Louisiana state troopers who told Green's family that he died in a car accident. Video of the beating was not released until two years after Green's death. Back in D.C., there was also Black Lives Matter news. A celebration was held Saturday, June 4th, to raise money for Asundiata Okoli, who was released from prison after serving nearly 50 years for a murder conviction that his supporters say was politically motivated because Okoli was a member of the Black Liberation Army and a leader in the Black Power Movement. Lamuma Bandelli, an organizer who worked to free Okoli, told those gathered about the importance of the legal victory. And we're celebrating 
something that people said would never happen. We were told that once Sundiata was captured that May 1973, that he would die in prison. We were told that he would never, never walk out of prison. He would never be able to embrace his family. He would never be able to be welcomed back home into, into his community. May 25th of this year, we proved them all liars. We did the impossible. Baba Sundiata Akoli is home with his daughter, with his grandchildren right now. And it takes a lot of work. It took a lot of work. Um, and I want to take a minute and ask us all, just take a minute and just do a round of applause for everybody that has worked on this campaign for the past 49 years, because as soon as those cuffs were put on his, on his wrist, as soon as they were pulled over and shot at on the turnpike, we were working in support of them. We as a, as a movement, I was only one years old, but as a movement, we were working. So let's give everybody that's put some work into this a round of applause, y'all. We did the impossible. Major current actions in D.C. include on June 11th, the National March for Our Lives and the Capitol Pride Parade. And Black Lives Matter D.C. core organizer April Goggins is inviting everyone to virtually attend a June 14th D.C. Court of Appeals hearing to determine whether D.C.'s Metropolitan Police Department must turn over documents to Goggins requested by her under the Freedom of Information Act. Goggins contends that she has been subjected to surveillance, spying, and harassment likened to the tactics of the FBI COINTELPRO program, which particularly targeted leaders in the civil rights and black power movements in the 1960s and 70s. Goggins told WPFW's Voices with Vision about her experience. It doesn't actually matter how involved you are or not. Perception publicly means that you're always a target. So from the beginning, um, things that we would see during protests, even, even at Black Joy Sunday, which was like a family event, was just, you know, the police coming around a lot more than they usually did. They were on a call or whatnot. But then it started being them in front of my house, in their cars or in the alley right across the street with their lights into my bedroom. Or um, I would go to protests and they would surround me and ask me what's going on. But it didn't have to be my protests or anything. Again, the hearing is scheduled for June 14th, 9.30 a.m. Eastern Time and can be accessed at the YouTube channel for the D.C. Court of Appeals. More information is at pacapower.org. That's P-A-C-A-P-O-W-E-R.org. And, of course, people are traveling to Washington, D.C. from around the country for the Saturday, June 18th, National Moral March on Washington sponsored by the Poor People's Campaign. The march will be covered live across the Pacifica Radio Network. And those are headlines and happenings. This is On the Ground. Stay with us.
This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Averam. Well, 11-year-old Mia Cerillo testified in Congress this week about surviving last month's murder of 19 of her classmates at Robb Elementary School in Ovalde, Texas. She said of the gunman, quote, he shot my friend that was next to me, and I thought he was going to come back to the room, so I grabbed blood and put it all over me, end quote. Before Mia, Dr. Roy Guerrero, a pediatrician who attended Rob Elementary, rushed to treat shooting victims that day and described corpses of grade schoolers rendered irrecognizable by rounds from a military-style weapon loaded with expanding bullets. Children whose bodies have been pulverized by bullets fired at them, decapitated, whose flesh had been ripped apart, that the only clue at their identities was a blood-splattered cartoon clothes still clinging to them, clinging for life and finding none. The fact that Mia and Dr. Guerrero are part of the indigenous population of this hemisphere was not lost on me as I read Gerald Horn's new book, The Counter-Revolution of 1836, Texas Slavery and Jim Crow, and the Roots of U.S. Fascism. In it, he reminds us that in Texas, when it came to the genocide of Native Americans by European settlers, it was, quote, permissible to kill all males 12 years and older by the 1850s, and where the vaunted Texas Rangers were little more than death squads of a type that came to characterize U.S. foreign policy by the mid-20th century, end quote. And with that brief insight, we're excited for Gerald Horn to join us again to discuss more about the latest in his series of books on history, which, of course, always tell us so much about what's happening today. He is the Morris Professor of History and African-American Studies at the University of Houston. Welcome back to the show, Gerald. Thank you. And, you know, I'm thinking in terms of the title of the book that I'm going to do this month's episode of the F Word one week early because your book covers what you describe as the roots of uh, U.S. fascism in Texas. So why don't I start with the recent horrific murders of the children in Uvalde and how that relates to your research and what you wrote about in this newest book? I'm afraid to say that this latest tragedy in Ovalde, Texas, may have been shocking, but it was utterly predictable. Utterly predictable insofar as it grows out of a violent Texas culture that stretches back at least to Texas's secession from Mexico in 1836, not least because Mexico, under a president of African descent, speaking of Vicente Guerrero, had moved to abolish slavery. Those freebooters, so-called Anglos, who had invaded Texas decades before, including Sam Houston and Stephen F. Austin and others who rather arrogantly gave their names to what became major U.S. cities, were not disposed to go along with abolition of slavery. And so like their counterparts and peers on the eastern seaboard of North America in 1776, who seceded from the British Empire because they thought that the British Empire was moving towards abolition of slavery, Texas 
emulated that maneuver and set up an independent country, the Republic of Texas, which was in existence from 1836 to 1845. During that period, Texas distinguished itself as a major enslaver of Africans. It's no accident that today Texas has the largest black population than any other state in the Union. It's no accident as well that Texas developed a violent culture based upon the promiscuous deployment of weapons because it faced on its so-called soil a fearsome militant brigade of Native American groupings, probably the most fearsome and militant in all of North America. I'm speaking, of course, of the Comanches in the first instance. I'm speaking of the Caddo, C-A-D-D-O, who had an interlocking directorate with people of African descent. I'm speaking of the Kiowa, K-I-O-W-A, many of whom wound up migrating south of the border into Mexico, where their descendants continued to reside. And so what happens, and this is important for the understanding of the subtitle, The Roots of U.S. Fascism, is that many of the so-called liberals, particularly in Washington, believe it or not, their preferred option, their preferred remedy for Native Americans was to have them migrate into so-called Bantustans, to use the South African apartheid term, reservations. Indeed, as you probably know, there was a massive Bantustan established on the northern border of Texas, so-called Indian Territory, now known as Oklahoma. However, in Texas, that particular option was seen as the option of the wimp, their preferred option was liquidation of the Native American population. And in that regard, what you need to realize is that liquidation of the Native American population, that is to say genocide, was not just coming from the top down, that is to say from the leaders or from the uh, leaders of the Texas Rangers, which you mentioned. It was also coming from the bottom up because you had a substantial migration into Texas from cutthroats and debtors from Dixie at large, such as Mississippi, uh, from Europe. So in order to understand fascism as it is emerging in North America, you have to understand that it is important, yes, to look at the leaders, such as Agent Orange himself, Donald J. Trump, but we would be misguided and misleading our constituency if we were to assume that there was not a bottom-up element uh, to this emergent fascism, just as if you look at January 6, 2021, you not only have to look at the CEOs who participated in that so-called insurrection, you have to look at the shopkeepers and the working class elements and the police officers and the soldiers as well. And this bespeaks the nature of settler colonialism. Uh, from the time that the English first established an attempted settlement, I should say, in what they called North Carolina in the 1580s, settler colonialism was a product of class collaboration. That is to say, it was not just the 1%, it was the 99%. Which brings me to a further point, 
which is that slogan, the 1% and the 99%, it has a certain usefulness. But to the extent that it elides the point of class collaboration, to the extent that it elides the point that a goodly number of the 99% are collaborating with the 1% because they think they're going to become part of the 1%. And so therefore, we'd be better off perhaps speaking of the one-third, the Trumpistas, the neo-fascists, versus the two-thirds, that is to say, the rest of us. And I think that that's one of the critical lessons that emerges from this book that I've just published on Texas and the Roots of U.S. Fascism. But what happened in 1845 is that independent Texas could not stand up to abolitionist pressure. Abolitionist pressure in North America, abolitionist pressure from London, and particularly abolitionist pressure from revolutionary Haiti, which was in the vanguard of abolition because it recognized that as long as slavery obtained anywhere in this hemisphere, Haiti's sovereign existence would be jeopardized. And indeed, that fortunately, so far, word that I think has disappeared from our vocabulary, speaking of, quote, being re-enslaved, unquote, that Haiti ran the risk of their populace being re-enslaved as long as you had these mass enslavers in places like Galveston, because the idea was, why go all the way across the Atlantic to Angola to get black people when a few hundred miles from uh, mm. the shores of the United States, you could get thousands of black people to bring them to the sugar plantations of Southeast Texas. When you were describing that, I was thinking about our previous discussions we've had around Juneteenth, for example, and this history of people coming from the eastern seaboard, coming, I guess, from Georgia, Tennessee, maybe even as far away as Virginia, to go to Texas because it looked like you know slavery could be abolished in the run-up to the Civil War, I suppose, and the people would actually just go to Texas because and, and try to take all their enslaved people with them to Texas where they could continue this process and this, you know, hideous institution of slavery. And that kind of coincides with the, I think one of your early sections of the book is called, I think it's called where the old South meets the wild West. And this this idea of you have all these people coming in with the idea of continuing slavery. You have indigenous people there putting up a fight to not have their land taken over by these in these settlers. You have enslaved people who know that they could be free if they weren't in this particular situation. And just the violence that was perpetuated just to keep that system in place. It's just to kind of keep what was a Wild West situation glued together. Well, keep in mind as well that independent Texas, the Texas Republic, sovereign Texas, saw itself as a competitor to the United States of America. That is to say, it thought that it could compete with the United States of America in terms of denuding Mexico. Indeed, uh, Texas wanted to swallow California before the United States of America swallowed California. And when the United States of America forced the indigenous population of the southeast quadrant of North America, speaking of the Cherokee, the Choctaw, the Seminoles, the Creeks, and other indigenous populations to embark on the 
trail of tears walking hundreds of miles from, say, Georgia to Oklahoma, which was then Indian Territory, the idea was that you put these disgruntled Native Americans on the northern border of Texas, independent Texas, and that would help to keep Texas in line. Now, part of what I'm saying, alert listeners may have gathered thus far, is a decided rebuke to what I consider to be the liberal fantasies about the creation of the United States of America that focuses upon these vaunted founding fathers, the likes of which we have not seen before or since, who veritably walked on water, who developed this celebrated Bill of Rights, which, by the way, included the Second Amendment, which guaranteed that settlers would have weapons whereby they could defeat the indigenous population and keep the enslaved Africans in line. Certainly, the enslaved Africans had no right to bear arms because if they did, I guarantee you slavery would have ended before 1865. And those who are familiar with a generally discredited cinematic genre known as the Western knows that one of the stock villains from Westerns is a settler who sells arms to Native Americans, helping them to fight back. And so this liberal fantasy, I think, handicaps us when it comes time to confront this emergent fascism, because there's this rampant idea that it can't happen here, as the 44th U.S. president used to assure us at fraught moments, that's not who we are with regard to, say, the shootings at Sandy Hook or the other disgraces that have pockmarked the U.S. landscape. And so, therefore, it's, it's a kind of ideological disarmament that mm. these historians have forced on the rest of us, helping to induce a certain kind of lulling, a certain kind of unrealistic view of what can happen on these shores. And this is happening at the same time as the January 6 hearings are telling us that there has been and will probably continue to be uh, continued plotting to forestall the possibility of the right wing ever losing another presidential election. That's why they're gearing up to control the office of secretary of state in so many different states because they want to control the office that controls the counting of votes. And so you should see this book on Texas, among other things, as an antidote to the poison of these liberal fantasies, which have misled and misguided generations of U.S. nationals and citizens, and is determined to do so indefinitely in the future unless we turn this ship of state around. Gerald, hold that thought. We're going to take a brief break and we'll be right back.
This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Averam, and I'm speaking with our geopolitical analyst, Professor Gerald Horn, about his new book, The Counter-Revolution of 1836, Texas Slavery and Jim Crow and the Roots of U.S. Fascism. Well, Gerald, also during recent years, we've had all these important news stories that we've discussed come out of Texas. I'm thinking about the fight for voting rights, how the state has implemented these draconian new uh, voting restrictions, the fight against women's access to reproductive rights, uh, very restrictive abortion laws. And the Texas governor recently signed laws to make, uh, make it easier for people to get guns and to carry guns out in the open in Texas. And, and he also said to a journalist recently that he wants to challenge the federal law that requires that all children, including children of the undocumented, must be educated. And I couldn't help think about that when I learned about this horrific massacre of children largely from the Latinx community. I'm also thinking about how there was this freeze of the power grid structure and so many people were without power. Some people froze to death. And we found out that Texas alone has its own power grid, which would have something to do with its status as being, you know, the Lone Star State and having this kind of the old South meeting the Wild West again and just this freewheeling capitalism. What's remarkable about Texas is that as early as Texas's admission to the United States in 1845, you had liberals, particularly from New England, who thought that this was the beginning of the end of whatever Republican small r experiment was to take place in the United States and North America. And this included uh, for example, the former U.S. president, John Quincy Adams, the son of a president, the second president, John Adams, then a member of the U.S. Congress from Massachusetts, uh, he was amongst those who felt that we either had to corral Texas or Texas would corral us. And apparently what's happening, given the litany that you just recited, as historians like to say, it's no accident that the catastrophes of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan were prosecuted by a president with roots in Texas, speaking of George W. Bush, that the catastrophe of the genocidal war in Southeast Asia in the 1960s was prosecuted by a Texan, President Lyndon Baines Johnson. And folks need to also realize that Texas is the most, or the second most populous state in the United States of America, second only to California which means that given the fact that the House of Representatives is based on population, probably the vanguard, the plurality of the reactionary members of Congress happened to hail from the Lone Star State. And likewise, if you look at the uh, January 6, 2021, so-called insurrection, one of the points that should leap out is that a disproportionate number of the so-called insurrectionists actually hailed from the state of Texas, even though they had further to travel than, say, people in Virginia, for example. And that gives you an idea of their verb, of their animal spirits, if you like, and of their determination to turn back the clock of time 
because that is their history. And as used to be said in the 19th century, if we're not able to corral Texas, Texas will corral us. And you mentioned a moment or two ago how there was this influx into Texas from points due east, not only before the Civil War, but particularly during the Civil War. Because recall that Texas had seceded from Mexico in 1836 on the question of slavery. And then it tried to secede from the United States of America in 1861. And in fact, you could consider it to be the vanguard nation in terms of secession from the United States in 1861. Uh, Texas contributed disproportionately to the men in gray who fought to maintain slavery. Texas was the Confederate state least damaged by the U.S. Civil War, which means that 1861 to 1865 and thereafter, as Georgia was seeking to recover economically and South Carolina and other states were seeking to recover economically, the slave owners would flee into Texas. And I'm afraid to say, oftentimes bringing uh, Africans uh, in tow. And this is even after slavery is officially abolished in 1865, which brings me to Juneteenth, the recently proclaimed holiday. Now, what's remarkable, and uh, I say this with no sense of satisfaction, uh, probably the most up-to-date analysis and history of Juneteenth is to be found in these pages. And what I find is that I, I have reporters who call me even now for comments on Juneteenth, but they want me to tell the traditional story about how General Granger shows up in Galveston, the major slave port, in June 19th, 1865, and tells the enslaved that you're free. Supposedly, they didn't know that they were free. But as any uh, high school student should be able to tell you, the Emancipation Proclamation, January 1st, 1863, could not apply to jurisdictions that were not under the rule of the Lincoln government, and that certainly included rebellious Texas. Africans certainly knew about the Emancipation Proclamation, but they were being forced to work for free at gunpoint. So what happens also uh, during this particular period in the 1860s is that France opportunistically had sought to take over Mexico during that period and then work out a deal with the Texas enslavers whereby either A, uh, slavery could continue and the rebellion of the enslavers could continue uh, post-1865, or B, the enslavers could move with their so-called property into Mexico to continue slavery in Mexico. But what happens is there is a mass revolt uh, in Mexico against this prospect. Many of your listeners are probably familiar with Cinco de Mayo, which is predominantly a Mexican-American holiday, which marks a victory over the French occupiers. But you cannot begin to understand how and why this diabolical plot of continuing enslavement in Mexico would ensue without understanding what happens, which is that there was a revolt by Mexicans against this prospect. And of course, they were assisted by the black population of Mexico, which is concentrated heavily on the Caribbean coast around Veracruz, for example. 
And as well, you have black soldiers in blue, that is to say, uh, armed Negro soldiers fighting for the U.S. government who are putting enormous pressure on the enslavers. And what that does is that leads finally to the ouster and execution of the French puppet leader, Maximilian, on June 19th, 1867, which is the Juneteenth that, in a sense, we should be celebrating because that brought us closer to the day when slavery would be effectively abolished, much more so than June 19th, 1865, with all due respect to the federal holiday and the story that underpins that federal holiday. But I should also make a point or two about what follows 1867, which is the attempted reconstruction, which, as you know, is drowned in blood by terrorists and the Ku Klux Klan. And it leads to one of the most profound and disgraceful eras by the black leadership in the history of the United States, which is obviously saying something. And that is that at the same time that black people were being terrorized by the Klan in East Texas, per the wishes of the black leadership, you had black men in blue who were routing the indigenous population in West Texas, engaging in ethnic cleansing, uh, clearing them away from the land so that the land could then be occupied uh, by invading uh, European settlers. Uh, this was a major blunder, to put it mildly, because it's followed swiftly by a very unique form of persecution in Texas. But, but before you get to that, so this is what is known as the Buffalo Soldiers, right? Correct. A very unique form of persecution in Texas. Uh, this is another perverse and cruel way that Texas was in the vanguard, which is that when black people were lynched in Texas, keep in mind that one of the secrets, even to this day, of the political economy of Texas is the presence of oil, which is one of the reasons why there is almost literal dancing in the streets of Houston at the prospect of Russian oil being boycotted by the European Union because they figure they can snatch mm -hmm. those markets. But when black men in particular, and they were the overwhelming victims of lynching, I'm afraid to say, were being lynched, oftentimes they'd be boiled in oil. Not only would they be boiled in oil and with matches and logs aflame being tossed in, up, up on them, but in this pre-radio, pre-television era, it was also a kind of entertainment for the settlers who would oftentimes take photographs that are on postcards that you can still find in museums. Oftentimes, the remaining carcass of the victims would be carved up and then pickled. And I assume that those digits and other aspects of the carcass can still be found on shelves and kitchens uh, in Texas, I'm afraid to say. And you should also realize that part of the story that I tell in this book also tells a story, as already suggested, about the fate of the Native Americans as Indian territory morphs into the state of Oklahoma by 1907. But what happens is that on Native American soil, there is oftentimes oil to be found, 
which then leads to a further routing of them. But as well, some of the indigenous populations, such as the Cherokee, in their attempt to assimilate and become like European settlers, had decided to enslave Africans. And what happens is that unlike their counterparts in Virginia or South Carolina, et cetera, they were forced to really carry through on the promise of 40 acres and a mule. And so you had developing a rather affluent class of Negroes, particularly in Tulsa, and I'm sure you can realize where this story is going. That is Mm -hmm. to say, up until 1921, when you had the settlers invade the Greenwood section of Tulsa on spurious grounds, needless to say, rout the Black population, seize their wealth, send them packing, and of course, uh, claim their wealth. And that is, in essence, the story of the massacre in Tulsa in 1921, uh, which the centenary was being marked in 2021. And going forward in succeeding decades because of the oil wealth in Texas, you had these notorious Texas oil men, such as H.L. Hunt, the Murchison family, the Cullen family, the leading lights of both Dallas and Houston, who by some measures were the richest people in the world, believe it or not, but also were major funders of very of every right-wing cuckoo scheme you could think of. Senator Joseph McCarthy of Wisconsin, who bears an eerie resemblance to current Senator Ted Cruz of Texas, was oftentimes referred to as the third senator from Texas because he was funded so handsomely by these Texas oil men one of the recipients of lush political donations. So this is the rather inglorious history of Texas. This is the history that we're all seeking to overcome. And once again, I must remind the audience that this book is consciously pitched as an antidote to the liberal fantasies that have led this nation to the brink of a unique kind of fascism And if we're not careful, we'll go over the edge, we'll go over the precipice into catastrophe and disaster. Well, we definitely want to pick up on some of those points. Such a fascinating, rich history. And I know everyone is listening intently, just like I am, to Gerald Horn talk about his new book, The Counter-Revolution of 1836, Texas Slavery, Jim Crow, and the Roots of American Fascism. We're going to take a brief break and we'll be right back.
This is On the Ground, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. I'm Esther Averam, and I'm speaking with Professor Gerald Horn about his new book, The Counter-Revolution of 1836, Texas Slavery and Jim Crow and the Roots of U.S. Fascism. One other issue I thought about in terms of Texas and this horrific murder of these young children and their teachers in Ovalde is the fact that it's very close to the border. And over the past year, we've had the issue of Haitian migrants being treated so badly by not only the U.S. lawmakers, but by the U.S. corporate media in terms of them being considered as invaders, these swarms of migrants who, you know, may have COVID and just horrible. And so many of them just being deported en masse back to Haiti where they had not lived in many years in some cases. And then, of course, the indigenous people of this hemisphere, as I mentioned before, getting treatment very different from the refugees from Ukraine that are given kind of a carte blanche and a red carpet to establish refugee status in this country. And, you know, it just reminds me of this history that you're laying out around European settlers, and especially in Texas, with a a certain violence and with the kinds of atrocities that you mentioned, making it clear that they saw this as a land for white people. And as we recently discussed this whole great replacement theory, and you heard commentators like Tucker Carlson referring to white people as the legacy Americans. You know, it's just very obvious that there's a certain amount of lack of memory, lack of history, lack of just consciousness about really the history of this country. So I I wanted to just kind of touch on relating this history that you're talking about to this country's uh, funding and arming the far right in Ukraine. As I mentioned, they have committed to letting 100,000 people from Ukraine come here. Not saying that all Ukrainians are Nazis or neo-Nazis or or far right. So I hope that's not too much (laughs) as a question, but I just wanted to begin to wind up on that. Well, first of all, we must insist upon the connection the inevitable connection between domestic policy and foreign policy, that should we be surprised that in Libya, Iraq, Afghanistan, and sites too numerous to mention, that U.S. imperialism makes the decision that disputes should be settled through the barrel of a gun, and that that particular ethos then returns to these shores with velocity, not only in Uvalde, but also in Buffalo and in other sites that we're all too familiar with. Likewise, we should realize that the mass murder that U.S. forces have committed in those aforementioned nations, not to mention those they are now supporting of an ultra-right hue in Central and Eastern Europe, that that leads to a coarsening of the psyche of too many people in the United States of America, a coarsening that then manifests itself in the ability of teenagers to grab assault weapons rather easily 
and ammunition and commit mayhem in a way that makes a supermarket or an elementary school seem like it's a kind of weird video game? And likewise, should we really be surprised, given the odious history of white supremacy in this country, that the United States basically bows and indeed encourages the roughhousing and manhandling of Haitians on the Texas-Mexico border within recent memory, while not only does Mr. Biden offer to admit 100,000 Ukrainians onto these shores, but the New York Times columnist Brett Stevens says that everyone should, who comes from Ukraine should be given a green card, allowing uh, various kinds of benefits. I, I have not seen a column where he says that Haitians who arrive on these shores should be given a, a green card, for example. However, I do not want to leave on a note of gloom and doom, as I stress in the book, at least in Texas, and I would dare say in a good deal of the United States, repression breeds resistance. That is to say, one of the reasons, one of the many reasons why Texas has had such a bloody history is because the resistance to depredations has been so fierce by the indigenous population, as noted by the Comanches in particular, by the enslaved African population, who in many ways pioneered with regard to devising means to revolt, and part of the comprehension of Texas rests upon the southern border because it's the only slave state in the United States of America that has an abolitionist nation, speaking of Mexico, hugging its southern border, stretching for 800 miles. And what helps to generate so much militarism in Texas is Mexico standing up to Texas, standing up to the United States of America, refusing to return enslaved property to Texas. Thousands upon thousands of enslaved Africans flee into Mexico. Mexico refuses to return them. And we see as we speak in Los Angeles, the glimmerings and the outlines of that kind of alliance that I noted in the 19th century emerging with the so-called Summit of the Americas, where President Lopez Obrador has refused to attend because of the refusal to extend an invitation to Cuba, to Venezuela, to Nicaragua, uh, followed by other countries such as Bolivia, Honduras, uh, given our optimism about impending elections in Colombia and Brazil, we see that there is an emerging block, oftentimes to be led by Mexico in league with Cuba. And that is reason and room for optimism that just as we were able to defeat the enslavers in the 19th century, we can defeat their descendants in 2022 and beyond. Well, on that note, we'll have to leave it there. I've been speaking to our geopolitical analyst, Professor Gerald Horn, professor of history and African-American studies at the University of Houston, and author of this latest book, The Counter-Revolution of 1836, Texas Slavery, Jim Crow, and the Roots of American Fascism. And I 
su- suggest everyone <laughs> uh, make sure they uh, check this book out. Thank you, Gerald. Thank you. And that will do it for today's episode of On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. You can also let us know you like our show on Facebook, Twitter, or patreon.com at On the Ground Show. And I also post links to my show on my Instagram page, which is Esther Averum, E-S-T-H-E-R-I-V-E-R-E-M, like Mary. Our podcast is On the Ground with Esther Averum, and it's on all your podcast platforms. And so whether that's Apple or Android or all of them, all right? And all our social media has a protest sign with green lettering that says On the Ground. The music we played this hour included Chant by Robert Glasper, What Rough Beast by the Burnt Sugar Orchestra, and our theme music is Voodoo Child by Jimi Hendrix. I'm Esther Rivera. Until next time, keep raising your voice. Peace. Thank you so much to listeners who have gotten on board with us and joined our Patreon page. We are a totally independent operation, independent journalism uh, produced here from Washington, D.C. We don't have any corporate backing. You see, we don't have any advertising and we don't want any. We want to be supported by our listeners and by the people. So please, uh, if you enjoy the podcast, go to patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N forward slash on the ground show and uh, become a member on Patreon. Uh, That's the best way because I can send you automatically an email every time we post the show, whenever we post bonus content. You can also go to the website on thegroundshow.org and click on the donate now or donate uh, support button. And it will tell you all ways you can give, including PayPal. And anybody who uh, wrote a check and sent it to us, we apologize. We had some problems with our mailing system. And so if you received a return check, please return it back and at that same address and we will get it. We've gotten everything straightened out. Anyway, thanks so much, everyone, for listening and supporting and can't wait to bring you next week's show.